better. It's Christmas time. I remember years ago, Preston and Crossway of you told us that every year at Christmas you could so easily get distracted by things and you would pray, God, please show me something new this Christmas season. And God was faithful to do that to you and for you. And I, I remembered that always and hope that God would answer that prayer for me as well. And this year, I really enjoyed preparing for today. Thank you, Greg, for asking me to speak again. I always, you always learn so much by teaching more than if you're just reading or whatever it is. Um, so today, I want to speak about the meaning of Christmas. And to start, um, I read out of John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's through verse 14. So I can't go any further without acknowledging um, the teachings of Tim Keller. Those of you who may have heard of him, he's a pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York. He's an excellent um, preacher, teacher, author. So the majority of this content is from him, um, yet it's from God. So I share it freely with you. <laughs> um, so at Christmas time, um, we, along with you know our culture, we enjoy time off from school or work. We enjoy family. We enjoy the decorations, the gifts. Um, and a lot of people, maybe even us, can find it easy to settle for those things as a, a source of enjoyment over that time period. Um, but a lot of people I know feel emptiness in that. And um, there's so much more to the meaning of Christmas. So in the passage I just read out of John, he's talking about Christmas. It's not in the way that the other gospels share about Christmas as to what happened with Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the angel and the facts of baby Jesus being born, but this is more of the meaning of, of those things. So I want to focus on verse 14, which says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, starting with the word. The word. Jesus is the word of God. Now, your word is the clearest and ultimate revelation of who you are. Um, if you are, if you see someone, suppose I see, um, you probably see people every day that you have seen often, but you may not know them. 
somebody you see walking to class or in your neighborhood walking the dog or around the you know at the grocery store or something and you may be able to infer a lot of things about those people by the way that they dress or the look on their face or what type of dog they have or you know whatever it is their car or something you may be able to infer a lot of things about them but if you've never spoken to them and they've never spoken to you would you say that you've met them no you wouldn't say that you met them because a person's word is a clear ex expression of who they are. Suppose you're inviting somebody over to your house. Um, you want it to be fun and welcoming. You want them to enjoy it. You want to prepare some foods or something. Um, would you know what to do without asking them, you know, what do you prefer? What do you, do you have any allergies? <laughs> I always think about that because of Simon. Um, no, if you want to know something about somebody, you need to hear their word, right? And so with God, it's that way. Um, his word is the clearest expression of who he is. So when we say the word, Jesus, Jesus is the clearest expression of who he is because he is his word. Um, now, if you don't know Jesus, you can still know a lot about God. You can know um, what his rules are. You can know what his actions are. You can know about the history. You can know a lot of things about God. But what this is saying is that you cannot actually know God except through Jesus, who is his word. So, out of that, reading some of the commentaries of this um, passage, there's a quote that says, If we are to know God... Neither rationalism nor mysticism will suffice. For God chose to make himself <coughs> finally and ultimately known in a real historical human being. A human being. So, taking the rational, people often say, people who don't know Jesus or don't necessarily believe in Christianity will say, well, I need a good reason to believe. I need a, you know, give me this perfect slam duck argument that God is real and Jesus is true and then I'll believe well <laughs> Tim Keller has a very interesting observation on that that you you know he goes all into philosophy 101 can you really prove with a single argument that anything is true and what it gets down to is that if you're trying to prove that you are who you say you are you have to assume that your own senses are true and working well, in order to prove that, you have to assume that that's, that is true. So then you're stuck begging the question. So hang with me for a second. Um, God, <laughs> suppose, suppose, I never took philosophy 101, but some of you probably did. Um, did you, Carla? No. Okay. Um, so suppose, suppose someone is, is trying to prove... Um, Say, I, I really am myself. I'm not, um, a, I'm not a butterfly <laughs> dreaming that I am Jessica Sneed. Okay, how can I prove that? Well, I know that I'm real, right? I mean, I'm looking at you. I'm talking to you. These are my hands. Well, in order for me to say that, I have to assume that my eyes are perceiving things correctly. I have to assume that what I'm saying is what you're hearing. I have to assume that these hands are really working. But then in doing that, that's what I'm trying to prove. So I'm begging the question in saying that these hands are real. 
So what he's trying to say is that there is no slam dunk perfect argument for anything. God hasn't given us an argument. He's given us a person. So in in many religions of searching for rationalism or how can I prove it, um, God didn't just give us an argument. He gave us a person. Which is interesting because when you look at the Greek, um, when it says um, the word made flesh, that word is logos, which is where we get our word for logic. So we can use logic and we should use logic to investigate Jesus, who he is, who he's, what did he say? What did he do? How did his actions match up with his words? Um, so oftentimes our society will say, well, we don't believe in that stuff. We just... You know, you have to take this leap of faith. Well, yes, you do. But there is so much that you can use your mind for to learn about God and to learn about Jesus. So the only way to know God is through his word, um, which is Jesus. So the word became flesh. So flesh is soft. Flesh is human. Flesh is vulnerable. Flesh is killable. He became those things. God has become vulnerable for us. It's radical to say this. We hear it so much, but it really is radical to say it. Only God, only Christianity claims that God has come down and is vulnerable. So imagine a dangerous situation. Imagine a house fire, a hostage situation, somebody caught in the rip current. And there's oftentimes rescuers. It may be an ordinary person. It may be a firefighter or someone who with who has skill and training in that area, but there's often a rescuer. Now the rescuer may swim out to the person in the rip, rip current. And how many times last summer did I read a story about somebody who swam out and they both perished? Or sometimes they are able to rescue that person from the the flames, whatever it may be. Um, But if someone goes down to help that person, they're risking their life. If I swim out in the ocean, I'm risking my life to save that person. Um, If I don't want to risk it, let that person perish, but I'll be okay. But when God, Jesus, heard our cries and saw us, he came down. Not at the risk of his life, but knowing that his life would be taken. His, he would be killed. He knew that. But he came anyway. And I, I love Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I love it. It's the, To me, it's the most theologically dense Christmas carol there is. And every line, like you're saying, you can read every line and just chew on it. And the line that I was thinking of um, in, in preparing here was, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. You can kind of think about that for a while, but... Veiled in flesh, the soft, killable flesh is God. So the implications of the idea that the word became flesh, um, there's a, and the, the middle of Hebrews 2, starting in verse 14 and skipping over a bit to verse 17, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook, partook of the same things. Therefore, he had to be made like us, his brothers, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I read that last part again. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So what this is saying is that the God of heaven has become flesh. He's become like us. He understands what it is like to have struggles. He's been there. Tia, you were talking about the wonderful counselor. And you were reading from Isaiah 9, the wonderful counselor. Um, I thought of Pat when I was thinking about this part. The best counselors um, have been through a problem, have come out on the other end. They're excellent counselors because they know exactly what you're going through. And Christmas says something that nobody, no other religion will say, that the God of the universe has been through what we struggle with. He struggled with hunger, with loneliness, with homelessness, grief, rejection, betrayal, torture, injustice. He went through all of these things. Have you experienced any of those things? Certainly. Well, so has he. He even faced death. So we can think, well, it's easy to have a pity party. I'm the only one who ever does this, and you you won't understand, and nobody can help me. That's not true. It's not true at all. In fact, it's sinful to think that way. We should take everything to him because he has faced it. He's faced death. Now, some people may say, well, I have gone to God. I prayed and prayed to him, and he didn't answer my prayer. He ignored me and abandoned me. Guess what? God knows what that feels like. Jesus prayed to God in the Garden of Gethsemane. God, if there's any way to take this cup from me, let it be so. And he was turned down. He was turned down. He faced death, and he was abandoned by God. Christmas means that Jesus has been there. He understands. So we must frame all of our struggles um, with the knowledge that the word became flesh. He's our wonderful counselor. We can go to him with anything. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us so that we can see his glory. This is my favorite part. So those of you who know Greek, Roger, probably Greg, I don't know who else. Okay, I already know this part, um, but this is just astounding to me. So John, the author, he could have used any number of words when he wrote this. He wrote, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He could have said, he lived among us, he resided among us, he dwelt among us. But no, the word that he literally chose in the Greek is the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Just as Moses had set up the tabernacle in the wilderness, he tabernacled among us. Think about that for a while. So the New Testament readers would have known what this meant. So Moses, remember, in um, the Old Testament had been up on the mountain and said, I want to see you, God. I want to see your glory. I want to know you. And God said, no, it'll kill you. You know, Hide in the cleft of this rock and I'll pass by you. And he said, create a tabernacle for me to dwell in. So we'll build the tabernacle, we'll have the priests, we'll have the sacrifices. God said, I will dwell in the Holy of Holies behind the curtain. The priest can come in once a year. Um, But you cannot see my glory. You cannot hold it, you cannot taste it, you cannot touch it. But now we hear the opposite in this verse, right? He tabernacled among us so we could behold his glory. So... 
Jesus is the tabernacle. We behold the glory that Moses couldn't have. It was accessible only to the high priest once a year. And now it's accessible to us. So what this means is that Jesus Christ is the end of religion as we know it. There is a retired preacher who lived in London named Dick Lucas who had this, um, in a sermon he recounted this imaginary conversation between an early Christian and a neighbor living in Rome. And the neighbor says, oh, a new religion. You're a, I hear you're a Christian. You know, tell me about your religion. Uh, where's your temple? And the Christian says, well, we don't have a temple or a tabernacle. Um, Jesus is our, is our temple. The neighbor is confused. No temple. Well, you know, where do your where do your priests go to do their rituals? What do they where do they go? And the the Christian says, Well, we don't have priests because Jesus is our priest. The neighbor is more confused and says, No priests. Well, where do you offer your sacrifices and how do you acquire favor with your gods? Um, the Christian the Christian replies, Well, we don't need sacrifices because Jesus is our sacrifice. And finally, the neighbor is just blown away and says, well, what kind of religion is this? Um, And the answer, of course, is that it's no kind of religion at all. It's not a religion. All the religions say, you must do these things. Here's a list of rules you have to follow, observances you must have um, in order to be accepted. And Christianity says, no, you're accepted through belief in Jesus. And therefore, you choose to live this way to honor and please him. It's the, it's the total opposite. You, have, you receive unmerited favor from God. Therefore, you want to love him and behave this way. There's no rule saying you must earn your way to God. So Jesus himself is the end of tabernacles and sacrifices and rituals. It's the end of religion as we know it. We don't get a religion. We get a person. So how is it possible for us to see the glory that Moses could not see? Why couldn't Moses see his glory? Well, have you ever experienced a life-affecting injustice? Have you ever been so wronged and so um, hurt by a person that you just... It's very hard for you to reconcile your relationship with that person. Um, It just can't be shrugged off with a, I'm sorry. No. And even if the person really is sorry, it, it takes some sort of action to reconcile those people. Well, think about what we've done against God. We've hardened our hearts against him. We worship every other thing. We disobey all of his commands. Um, so a gap has opened up between us, between each one of us and a, our human race as a, as a whole. So it's not easy to fill that gap. That's a huge gap. It's an enormous and inconceivable gap because of our sin. Now, when we have a, you know, when we are hurt by someone, we feel something similar. It's much, much smaller, but we feel it because we're made in the image of God and we can perceive what that type of hurt feels like. So something has to happen to close that gap more than, and I'm sorry, some action has to take place. And it may not be clear as to what that is. It's different for every situation. But in this case, um, we can't go into God's presence because there's this gap. We can't go into the tabernacle. 
So when it says that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and the tabernacle is the place of sacrifice, it means that Jesus had to become killable so that he could pay the price and he can close that gap. In the Old Testament, the glory of God was often a consuming fire or a smoking mountain. Um, but at, at Christmas time, this is a Tim Keller quote, at Christmas time, the unscalable majesty and transcendent holiness of God has become a baby. Think of the contrast. <laughs> a baby is safe and accessible and embraceable. And since Jesus came into history and died on the cross and closed the gap, now his glory can come into your life and my life. The life-transforming glory of God can come to you. It can't be. It's an, that's an impossibility. The life-transforming glory of God can come to you. You can experience what Moses never had. That's what Christmas means. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us so that we now behold the glory that Moses was not able to see. So there's some practical applications of all of this. If all of this is true, since all of this is true, thank you, there can be no halfway measures with following Jesus. You don't just like a man who makes these claims. He is the word of God. He's the ultimate expression of who God is. He's a man who claims to be God. He claims that he can judge the world. Only God can do that. He claims that he can forgive sins. Only God can do that. And unlike other founders of other religions or even other prophets in the Bible, he's not just another prophet or sage pointing to God. He is the God to whom all those prophets and sages point. So you have to think about that. That forces you to think in a different way. Because if Jesus makes these claims to be the living true God, you have to decide. You have to decide if he's a fool or a wicked man and run far away from him. Or you have to decide that he is telling the truth and he is who he says he is. He is God. And build your life around him. Give your life to him. You can't just like him. It's all or nothing. So there'd be no halfway measures with following Jesus. Second is, we should go to him as our counselor. Why is that hard? It is so hard for me in particular to do that. Jesus, I need you. And he's teaching me that. Yes, I need you. <laughs> I need you desperately. Whatever you, ha you need, he has it. There's a story in Mark chapter 2. It's a great story. Jesus is preaching in a house full of people. And these men have a friend who's paralyzed. They know Jesus can heal him. They could just get him in there. So they go to an extreme measure. I mean, you read these stories so often that you don't think, what's really happening? They go up on the roof of the house and start tearing the roof off. Can you imagine? They tear the roof off and they lower the man in there. And what's the first thing Jesus says to that man? Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now, it doesn't record in here that that man had said anything. I mean, if he didn't say anything, why would Jesus say your sins are forgiven? There's nowhere recorded in the Bible where God just goes out doling out forgiveness without someone repenting. 
You don't see that anywhere. So there must have been some burden of unexpressed repentance and agony in that man's heart. And Jesus knew that. He was the wonderful counselor. He knew that. And so he knew that that man needed not only to be physically made well, he needed to be spiritually made well. He's so eager to give us his grace. He's so eager. If we just ask. Why wouldn't you want to trust somebody like that? Who's so eager to extend grace. So if you're suffering, if you're lonely, if you've felt betrayed, if you felt overwhelmed, he's been there. He's even felt abandoned by God. He's been there. We can go to him as our wonderful counselor always. So the third thing this means is that the real becomes ideal. The ideal becomes real. Simon and Clara and I and Jason enjoy reading the children's storybook Bible, which is um, makes it real. The, this, it's written for children, but it's not over oversimplified or dumbed down. It still has its meaning intact. And in all of those you know, many stories, it's always pointing to Jesus. But at the beginning, it gives like a little overview of what the Bible is. It's, it's not just a book about rules or about people. Um, or heroes or what we should do it's a, it's a story it's a story and it tells the story of creation and Adam and Eve and then it goes through the fall and the sin and it shows a photo a picture of Adam and Eve being cast out of the garden and it says in most other stories it would have ended right here but not this story and it talks about Fairy tales. Why do some people love fairy tales and some people hate fairy tales? You may you may meet someone who says, I can't I hate that stuff. It's so unrealistic. And other people will say, Well, I love it because I don't want to deal with the realistic. <laughs> right? You have the you have the two sides. But in this case, why would there be fairy tales if there wasn't some element of truth in that? The fairy tale, the idea that you can live happily ever after, is a pipe dream to some. But it's true with Jesus. It's true. There's a story of uh, Don Quixote, which when I was a kid, I have to say this, I always thought it was Donkey Odie. But <laughs> and, um, and the Man of La Mancha, which is the musical they created from it. <laughs> He has decided that he's going to be mad. And the quote is, Maddest of all to see life as it is and not as it ought to be. Maddest of all to see life as it is and not as it ought to be. It's the conflict between the real and ideal. So the real and the ideal in most of our lives are divided by this huge gap and they don't overlap at all. We have the life that we always wanted and the life that we have or you know, maybe you had this dream or this story and you always wished it would be this way. And the real and ideal very rarely overlap for us. Um, ideal will never enter the real. The real will never enter the ideal. Um, but in this story, Don Quixote has decided that he's going to live on the basis of the ideal rather than the real, which makes him insane. <laughs> right? So, you know, there's all this contrast between ideal and real. But 
Christmas means we don't have to choose between the real and the ideal. At Christmas time, the word became flesh means that the ideal has broken through this barrier into the real. He's entered our story. He has entered the real. And he can bring the ideal into our lives and transform us into who he is. So don't look at anything in your life and think that it will never change. Christmas means anything can change. Christmas means you can trust Jesus. Christmas means we should follow him with our whole heart, not half-heartedly. So our prayer today is that God would help us to obey and trust him as the word who became flesh for us. That he would change us with the truth of Christmas. That we would not just settle for warm inspirations. Um, but that the me- true meaning of Christmas would be so strong in our hearts that we would be able to enjoy all these other gifts in the context of who <clears throat> Jesus is. May God make all of us more like Jesus. Amen. Do you have any comments you'd like to share with Jessica?